Thank you, Matt and the worship team. Good morning. How are we doing today? Super duper. What a beautiful sunset this morning. My word, gorgeous. <clears throat> well, my name's Adrian, and I'm one of the pastors here at Carney E. Free. If we haven't met yet, I'd love to connect with you after the service. I'd love to meet you whenever you're able. We are in this uh, series that we've titled The God That Jesus Revealed. And it's a fall time series that's really taken the entirety of the fall as we seek to understand more of who Jesus is, um, what God revealed to us about himself through Jesus, who is the image of the invisible God, such that when we look at Jesus, we can know what God is like. We can know what his character is like, and we would thereby grow in trust and in worship and in a deep abiding peace in him. And we interrupted this series with a three-week mini-series titled The God That Jesus Didn't Reveal, which we looked at a few different myths that many people hold about God and how Jesus counteracted those myths. Today we're going back to the God that Jesus did reveal, as again we seek to bolster ourselves with a deep understanding of who God is through His incarnate Son. Last week we talked about the truth that, that Jesus is a giver. He's gracious and He is generous beyond what we could ever ask or imagine. He is uh, a giver far beyond what we could have even expected. He is loving and He is generous and He is gracious in His acceptance of us and He offers that grace lavishly to all who will receive Him. Today we're going to talk about the God that receives. He both gives to us generously and also He receives. I love what Matt just prayed, that we don't have much to give, but we can worship. And we worship a God who does receive our worship. So we'll, we'll address that a little bit this morning. You know, financial advisors tell us that when it comes to our money, we shouldn't just think about three months from now. We shouldn't just think about three years from now. When it comes to our money, we should think about 30 years from now. How would our money work for us through our investments 30 years into the future? Did you know that Jesus was a financial advisor of sorts? Did you know that? He gave some unorthodox financial advice at times. And in fact, Jesus spoke about finances. He spoke about money and possessions more than any other topic. We don't talk about it a whole lot here at eFree. I want you to know that as I talk about it a little bit today. But he spoke about it more than family. He spoke about it more than suffering. He spoke about it more even than heaven. He spoke about finances. But he was unorthodox in his financial advice. He said, don't just think about where your money will be three months or three years or 30 years from now. Think about where your money will be 30,000 years from now. You ever think about that? Where your money, where your possessions would be 30,000 years from now. He's the outside-the-box financial planner. Jesus invites us to send our money forward. Indeed, he would teach us in the passage we're going to look at this morning. Two different passages, one from Matthew 6 and the other one from Luke chapter 21. But the first one, Matthew 6, he teaches us emphatically that we cannot take our treasures with us, but we can 
send them ahead. Do you know that? Does anyone know that with me? We cannot take our treasures with us, but we can send our treasures forward. We can send them ahead into eternity. There's a beautiful little book called The Treasure Principle by Randy Alcorn, and in this book, which I would highly recommend for anyone who's seeking to understand how we would grow in the stewardship of what God has given. That's what this is all about, treasuring what God has given and treasuring Him the most before we treasure anything, sending what we have forward even, stewarding well what God has given. And he gives this wonderful illustration in this book, um, comparing our money, comparing our, re- our resources to Confederate money at the end of, of the Civil War. Stay with me as I give this analogy. Was anyone here alive at the end of the Civil War? Okay, I know none of you were alive. It was a joke, thanks to the three people who laughed. But if you were alive at the end of the Civil War, and for some reason you were living down in the South, but you were a Northerner, and in fact, though there were many people who were Northerners, though they were part of the Union, they were Yankees, though living in the South and doing business in the South though during the Civil War. And during the Civil War, yeah, you get news that the war is coming to an end and the Union has won. And during this time in the South, you can't wait to get back to your home in Nebraska, but during this time in the South, you uh, have accumulated some Southern money, some Confederate money. And there was Confederate currency, but as you've accumulated though, this Confederate currency, you've started to build up more and more of a reservoir of wealth, you realize that pretty soon that Confederate money is going to be worth nothing. It's going to go out of business, if you will, because the only money that will be worth anything is that union money. And so you'd be wise if you recognize that as the war is coming to an end to uh, save the most basic amount of money for your most basic essentials and maybe a few wants but exchange the rest of it for union currency as quickly as you can because the moment the war is over, that Confederate currency is not going to have any value whatsoever. And so also, for us as Christians, we know that we have Confederate currency, as it were. That one day, as soon as we die, or as soon as Jesus returns, to grab his church and bring us with him, our currency will be worthless. You get it? And so as the analogy goes, as Alcorn uh, conveys it in the treasure principle, Christians are wise to understand that because the currency that we have will one day quickly become worthless to us whenever Christ returns or we die, whichever one comes first, we would be wise to do what we can to save the necessities that we need for our lives here, but to uh, send all the rest forward to the only place that it will actually last once we die. You see, there's nothing wrong with Confederate money as long as you understand its limitations. That's what Jesus is going to tell us here in Matthew chapter 6 when he invites us to consider what is it that we actually treasure and where will those treasures truly be. Matthew 6, looking at verse 19 through 21, in Jesus' famed Sermon on the Mount, he says this, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth 
where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and thieves cannot break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Father in heaven, would you please teach us from this beautiful word? It's powerful and it is challenging to me. And I'm sure it is to my friends in this room as well. That wherever our treasure is, that's where our heart will be. Would you lead us, Lord? Would you comfort those of us who are here today and are so much in need of your comfort? There are people in this room today who are brokenhearted and are hurting, and they need your comfort. And there are others in this room today that need to be challenged. So I ask God that you would provide that for each of us. Comfort to those who need comfort. Challenge to those who need challenge. That you would guide us and you would lead us to understand and begin to apply more and more the power of your written word. In the name of Christ Jesus, we pray together. Amen. Amen. So I think this statement of Jesus, wherever your treasure is, there your heart will be also, begs this question, what exactly is a treasure? A treasure is whatever gets your heart. It's whatever grabs your affections. It's whatever grabs your eye. You say, I look at that and I long for it. It takes my affections and I feel like I need more of that. What was your greatest treasure growing up? My greatest treasure growing up was my baseball card collection, which I kept under lock and key from my little brother. I mean, it was a treasure I need to preserve all those corners to preserve the value of every single baseball card. Any other guys have a baseball card collection growing up? Now they're not worth nothing. Or perhaps your treasure growing up was a piece of jewelry that you got from your mother. Or what? Hot Wheel cars, I hear from the front row. Great one. Or maybe you had a treasure of a favorite stuffed animal or a letter from a pen pal. Um, my boys had treasured blankies. Did your kids have treasured blankies? And if you're taking note, don't do what my family once did, which was go on a family vacation without their treasured blankies. <laughs> Never again. Never again. Don't ever do that. And there's nothing wrong with having a few of these treasures here on earth. Jesus would not deny us that joy. It's not a bad thing to have a few treasures like that. He just says that they are insufficient, and he says they will not last. And so, as Proverbs 23.5 points out, let's read this out loud. out loud. You'll see it up on the screen. Let's all read this out loud together. Would you join me? It says, cast but a glance at riches and they are gone, for they will surely sprout wings and fly off to the sky. Isn't that the truth? Isn't that the truth? You cast but a glance at riches. 401Ks have a way of growing wings, don't they? Some of my closest friends were people who had wealth of 3 to $4 million back in 2007. But after the financial crisis by 2009, they had less than a million dollars to their name. Our 401ks have a way of growing wings. Or you think about those beautiful 
old photographs that we have from 35 millimeter uh, cameras. Uh, they're beautiful, but they lose their color and they gain creases. And those treasured stuffed animals lose their limbs. And uh, Corvettes lose their luster. And wouldn't you agree that everything on this good earth eventually loses its glory? Moth and rust eventually wins the day here on this earth, does it not? But a treasure in heaven is a reward that followers of Christ will receive once we enter heaven for doing good deeds here on earth. Now, please hear me carefully. I believe that our primary motivation for doing good deeds, for blessing others, is simply to fulfill the great commandment, that we are to love God with all we got and to love others as ourselves. That's the primary motivation for our good deeds. But a nice secondary motivation, Jesus would tell us here, is that whatever good that you do here on earth will one day be rewarded back to you in heaven. And that's a helpful secondary motivation for us when we don't feel like loving our brother or sister. It's a helpful secondary motivation for us when we don't feel like being generous to other people. And so God's promise to us is that whatever we do for the least of those among us, we are actually paying it forward unto heaven and he will repay it to us when we go there. So beautiful teaching though, that also extends to some other areas of life. The Bible would tell us that when you are persecuted for righteousness' sake, surely you will be rewarded in heaven. Now this isn't talking about, well, when Christians claim persecution, when they're just taking a victim mentality. And I've seen many Christians do that, and they're actually attacking others, and they're not being gentle and loving. And they say, oh, look at these people, how mean they are to us. Well, that's not persecution, and you will not be rewarded, by that, rewarded for that. But if you actually are persecuted for righteousness, persecuted for lovingly taking a stand for Christ, you'll be rewarded for eternity. It says elsewhere that when you throw banquets for the poor, you throw banquets for those who could never repay, you'll be repaid in heaven. It says that when we show compassion to the least of these among us, we will be repaid. Whatever you do for the least of these, you do it unto me, Jesus said. And finally, when we store up our treasured finances in heaven by giving to what God wants done in his church and in the world and for the extension of his kingdom, we will be rewarded for that. Remember what Jesus said to the rich young ruler who came to him and he asked to follow Jesus. And Jesus says these haunting words, Go sell your possessions and give to the poor. And then you will have treasure in heaven. And then you come and follow me. You see, he's articulating a correlation there. That as we give to the poor, so also God will give back to us in heaven. He's saying that as we give even tonight to the health care clinic, that's meeting the needs of the most poor in our community, so also we can trust that one day God will give back to us in heaven. He says elsewhere that as we choose to give with our time and our talents and our treasures, he will give us a crown, a reward in heaven, 
I'm not sure exactly what that will look like. He will give us responsibilities to steward in heaven. Heaven will not be boring. We will have work. We will have responsibilities to do in heaven. Again, I'm not sure exactly what that will look like, but what Jesus says emphatically to us is that the good that we do here on earth will not be wasted on earth alone. It will be returned to us in heaven. Can I get an amen for that? Once again, Randy Alcorn sums it up so well. He says, whatever treasures we store up on earth will be left behind when we leave. But whatever treasures we store up in heaven will be there for us when we arrive. So the question isn't whether we will have treasures or not. The question is, where will our treasures be? And what will we treasure the most? Because our hearts will always be directed to whatever it is that we treasure the most. This is just a basic fact of human existence. Our hearts will always be directed. Our affections will always go to whatever it is that we treasure the most. As the sunflower follows the sun, so our hearts follow our treasures. Our affections follow our treasures. Our eyesight will follow our treasures. And so we, from time to time, are very wise to guard our hearts and just ask ourselves, what is it that I am treasuring most? This is for our own good that we would do that. And the result is that when we would ask, um, how can I treasure my wife? How can I treasure my husband? That's a very good question. Why? Why would it be so good to treasure that person and invest in that person? Because they're going to last for all eternity. Or how do I treasure my friend? How do I treasure my son or my daughter? That's a very good question because those are people of indescribable value who will last forever and ever. That's a very good investment. But when we go to the way of the world, how do I treasure more and more stuff? Well, the truth is that stuff isn't going to last. Now, Jesus does give us the joy of enjoying some things on earth. And there are many passages that speak to that. And it's fine to have some possessions, but the question that we need to regularly ask ourselves is, do my possessions possess my heart? Possessions are fine so long as they do not possess us. And that, of course, was the problem with the rich young ruler. Jesus identified the one thing that he treasured more than God it was his stuff. It was his love of money. His stuff got all of his time. His stuff got all of his affections. And probably without even knowing it, here's the warning, probably without even knowing it, his stuff became his treasure that actually stood in the way between him and God. And tragically, we know many, many people just like that who don't even realize that it's happening, they're accumulating so much, they're loving money and the things that it buys so much, they don't even realize that it's taking their affections, it's becoming their primary treasure. You see, the center of Jesus' teaching here in Matthew 6 is that fundamentally, uh, if you break it all down, there's basically two masters. And they're in opposition to each other. So we'll either serve the one and be devoted to it, or we'll serve the other and be devoted to it. 
And in all likelihood, for most of us, rich or poor, we have to make this choice, though, that we're going to regularly serve our Father in heaven and recognize, though, that if we don't, if we don't treasure him the most, then there's always going to be this inclination to serve money and the things that it buys. And Jesus actually here elevates money, bringing it to the position of deifying it. He says you cannot serve both God and money. He's saying they are competing masters, and one of them will get most of our attention. You see, when possessions begin to possess us, it's at that time that we lose so much of our joy. And when possessions begin to possess us, you perhaps have seen this in your own heart, perhaps you've seen it in other people, we actually can lose the impulse to worship. Because our hearts have been taken by another less wild lover than our one true God. This is why Andrew Carnegie, who was one of the richest men in all of history, said back in the 1920s, you know, millionaires seldomly smile. Now today, you'd have to be billionaires seldomly smile. That was back in the 1920s. He was one of the most richest men in all of history. But conversely, I would bet that each of us could tell stories of simple people, some of whom are very wealthy and some of whom don't have much at all, but they all choose to live generously, and they live generously with a smile. You know some of those people? I, I know so many people. I mean, it's not about how much money they have, but they just choose to live really generous lives, and they refuse to allow money to become their God. And you see them, and they give with a smile. I think of Lois and Kathy, and I think of Rod, and I think of Mark, and, and so many other people who live generously, and the result is they have a smile as they give. Generosity can be one of the sources of our greatest joys. Now, the truth is, this is hard for all of us, and I just want to tell you, it's hard for me too. There are no stones coming from the stage, please hear me. It's hard for me too. I'll share with you a quick story. Maybe five, six years ago, Susie and I met with a financial advisor as we said, you know, we want our kids to be able to go to college if uh, that's the way God made them. If God has made them to go to college and, and, and they would uh, be able to succeed there, then we'd like them to have the opportunity to do that. So we need to start this uh, college savings account. And so we sat down with this financial advisor to begin to ask the question, how much do we need to save so that our kids could, could have a chance at going to college? And he brought this nifty, difty little chart to show us how much we're going to need to save so that 15 years from now, perhaps our kids would have a chance at paying for college. I hated that chart. He pulled it out, and he said, okay, Adrian and Susie, here's the deal. 15 years from now, when your eldest son is about ready to go for college, the projections would indicate the in-state tuition would be about $50,000 a year. And 15 years from now, if the projections hold steady, it would indicate that private school tuition would be roughly $100,000 a year, not including room and board. So he kind of concluded, you probably should have started saving about 50 years ago. <laughs> Good luck with that. To which I walked out of the room and I said, ain't nobody getting another dime of my money. No birthday presents, no Christmas presents for the next 15 years. No churches, no missionaries, no charity groups coming to my door. No one's getting any more of my money. Tell you what, in that moment, money 
had a firm grasp right here. It's so powerful that way. And it has that way of grabbing all of us, particularly as we're inculcated by a world that says, first you spend, second you save, third you give. Whereas the priority that would come from our Father in heaven is, first you give, second you save, and then you spend, then you live on the rest. Now I think it's really, really important though that we note as we talk about how difficult this is, that some people, God has given some people a tremendous gift of being able to raise money, earn money, to multiply money. And if that's you, there is no shame whatsoever in that. All Jesus would say in this is that if God has given you that special gift, it's a unique gift that you're responsible to steward. Much in the same way, as any other gift that God gives any other person. They are responsible to steward. And most of us in America have been given that gift, at least in part, so much more than so much of the world. And so as Susie and I have processed through that reality that we have so much more than most people in the world, and we go through the, the very normal, very natural reaction that I just described, that, that, that I say to this financial advisor, well, if that's the case, then I'm only going to take care of me and mine, well, then what do I do with that? And what do you do with that? How do I deal with that as I reckon between that reality that's in my heart and what the Scripture seems to say about giving? So let me just speak to that for just a moment. But Because inevitably, anytime you talk about this subject, people are going to ask the question, how much? So let's just address that for a moment. Stay with me here. Give me a fair hearing, please. Malachi 3.10 says this. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. The storehouse represents the temple in the Old Testament. Okay? Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord God Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. What God is saying here, what the Bible says elsewhere, is we are to test God as we grow in the grace of generosity. I would encourage you to grow in this grace of generosity, to develop a plan for generosity, much in the same way as you develop a plan for any Christian virtue. You want to grow in kindness? You develop a plan for that. You want to grow in service? You develop a plan for that. You want to grow in generosity? You develop a plan for that. And then you see how God provides as you give generously to what he wants done in the world. And I think as we give to his purposes in the world, he will frequently bless us in return. I'm not saying he will bless us in return financially. Please hear me. I'm not saying that at all. He will bless us with a different level of character, a different level of virtue, a different level of faith than perhaps we've ever had before. That's the kind of blessing that we can anticipate as we grow in the grace of generosity. So here are a few words that conceptualizes how Susie and I have sought to grow in the grace of generosity. I'm just going to share this with you in all humility. The first word is priority. How do you prioritize your money? And again, the priority normally in the world is spend first, save second, and give if there's anything left over. 
the priority to God is this idea of first fruits. And it's giving first, spending second, and living on the rest. So how do you prioritize your money, understanding that all of it has come from our Father who gives generously to all who ask from Him? Second, I think we want to identify a percentage that we can give. Now, in the Old Testament, as I've noted already, that percentage was the tithe. What many people don't understand is that the tithe in the Old Testament was actually about 23%. Woo! Anyone? Okay, so the tithe in the Old Testament included caring for the temple, caring for the priests, caring for the poor, but also included the civil laws, the roads, the welfare system, all of those things that we pay for with our taxes. Sometimes it was as high as 33%. Now, it's very interesting to note that Jesus never commands a tithe, okay? I'd like to suggest that perhaps the reason Jesus never commands a tithe is because he's very gracious, and he understands that for many people, including perhaps many people in this room, there are times in our lives that we just can't give a tithe, and that's okay. I believe there's grace in that, especially when you're just starting out in giving, or especially when you're going from job to job and ends can't meet. I believe there would be grace to you in that. And I want you to hear from me, this is a no-guilt message with respect to giving. Do not hear from me any guilt that you're expected to do what you simply cannot do. That is not what I believe the Scriptures teach. But what I do believe the Scriptures would teach is you identify something that stretches you, a percentage of some kind that stretches you from where you are. And for some people, that might be a little bit less than a tithe, and for many people, it may be way more than a tithe. Because what Jesus typically does is take the Old Testament standard and shoot it through the roof. He typically says, you have heard it said, but I say to you, and goes much higher. So again, what we've tried to do is say, we're going to give our tithe first to our storehouse that feeds us. This storehouse feeds us too. Feeds us spiritually. It, it, it cares for us. It nourishes us. So we we begin here, and then we say, what missionaries will we support? And, and how would we care for the poor with the money that God has given? But Because I know he expects all of that. And then finally, the last P is progressive. How do we progressively give more year after year? Because I don't want to stop. I don't want to stop with the joy of generosity. I want to grow in the joy of generosity, don't you? We want to grow in the joy of generosity because this is one of the best gifts that God gives us for our own good. Can I get an amen, please? Boy, it's quiet in here. I feel like I can drop a pin. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, one final thought. Many people ask the question, what do I have to give? What's the minimum? That's an adventure in missing the point. It's not about what do I have to give. What do I get to give to what God wants done in the world? What do I get to give to extend his glory overseas? What do I get to give to expand his kingdom to where it's not yet known? What do I get to give to care for the most impoverished in my own 
community. So I ask you only to pray about it. Pray about it. How would God want you to grow in the grace of giving? For our church? For missionaries? For the poor in our own community? Even tonight as we take an offering for the health care clinic. Now here's the kicker. God invites us to give for our own good. I've heard so many non-Christians say, uh, I don't want your God because your God needs so much money. God don't need no money. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He owns it all. He doesn't need our money. He invites us to give because we need to give. He invites us to give for our own good such that money would not have our hearts. You see, he doesn't need us to give. He needs us to give for our own good. He invites us to give for our own good. Not because he needs it, but because we need it. So as we treasure God most, we will experience great joy in giving to him, and God will experience worship as we give to him. We give to him our time, we give to him our talents, and yes, we give to him out of our financial treasures, and he experiences worship even as we experience great joy in the delight of giving to him. The furthest thing from being burdensome, this is a joy, when you recognize that God gives this to us to protect our own hearts. Let me close with this uh, beautiful story. You'll be familiar with it. It comes from Luke chapter 21, and it's not up on the screen. You might just listen to it. You can close your eyes if you wish, and we're going to go directly into worship out of this. And it's one of the most beautiful portraits in Scripture that, that speaks to this reality that as we talked about last week, God is so generous, He's so gracious to give to us all that we have. And in His love, He receives from us. He receives our worship. And it's a delight to His heart. Jesus looked up and He saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And then He saw a poor widow poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he looked at that and he was amazed. And he said, truly, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them combined. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, put in all that she had to live on. Do you hear it? This is our God who receives our worship. We talk much about how we worship God through song. And sometimes we miss this reality that we worship God as we serve. And we worship God as we give. And we worship God as we look out for the needs of others. And it's not mostly about the amount. It's mostly about a sincere heart that says, I'm giving my all to God. I love you, God. 
And as I give this to someone else who has a need, I'm ultimately giving it to you. So what I'm going to do right now is pray, and then we're going to take our offering. But as we take our offering, I want you to hear me clearly. My prayer is not that this would somehow increase the size of the offering. That's not it at all. My prayer is that in light of Jesus' message here, it would increase our capacity to worship him as we give out of all that he has given. Would you join me, please? Oh, Father, thank you. I love that word in the Psalms that says you own all the cattle on a thousand hills. We think we own it. You own it. Every good and perfect gift we have has not come from our best earning. It's come from the loving Father above. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you've given much to some of us. You've given somewhat less to others of us. But the boundary lines have fallen in pleasant places for all of us. And we thank you, Lord, that you receive our worship. You know, it strikes me that, uh, that some people want to love only as they give. But you give us the real portrait of love that you both give to us and also, as hard as it is for us to imagine, you receive from us. So Father, our heart's desire now as we give this morning or maybe as we prepare to give tonight or later on in the month or maybe we even gave later, maybe we even gave earlier this week online or through text giving, whatever the case may be, as we give, we give to you. We ask that you would receive it. Just as you received it from this widow who put in her two red pennies, so also you receive our heart of worship as we give back to the Father whose name is love careful to give you all the glory. We deserve no credit. All glory on heaven and on earth is yours forever and ever, we say together.